Who says mainline pastors don't take Paul seriously? I mean, you do need to pay attention to the difference between conjunctions and anatomical parts. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. It's a podcast where we explore the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Back in the old days, uh, in seminary, we refer to that as theological reflection. We invite uh, pastors, theologians, practitioners, authors to um, help us think through those events and experiences that we have in light of the gospel. That is the good news of God in, in Jesus Christ. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have uh, my friends over uh, from over at Crackers and Grape Juice, and um, I have a little bit of a confession to make. And at least from my end, it it does say that you haven't started recording yet, just FYI. Um, I thought I was recording. It said I was. It didn't. And then on my backup recorder, I had their uh, input clicked to record and on my end i had a different channel oh perfect okay okay hey i I just i i've made the mistake of not recording before so that's what happens when you've laid off for a couple of months and so i've gone back and reconstructed uh my side of the conversation not wanting to give away any of their trade secrets that's what we tell people at least when it's an interview (laughs) we don't want to post so rather than just bury this uh, project, I thought it was too important to uh, talk to them about their new book, I Like Big Butts, Reflections on Romans. Uh, we'll get into the title. They tend to like provocative titles for their sermons, which is fine with me. In fact, it, it does pike curiosity. So w- with that in mind, uh, we'll... Uh, point to some opportunities and places to uh, purchase the book, why they produced it, and what you can do to help them along the way. So without uh, any further ado, here is my, well, reconstructed conversation with my good friends over at Crackers and Grape Juice, Jason Michelli, Taylor Mertens, and Tier Hardy. Welcome to Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have uh, Jason Michelli, uh, Taylor Mertens, and Tier Hardy, the gang over at Crackers and Grape Juice, for discussion about their new book titled, I Like Big Butts, Reflections on Romans. Guys, I have to tell you that um, that's a, a pretty provocative title. I know it's the title of one of Jason's sermons. And how's that gone over? I had to explain that to my grandmother. She didn't get it. It's been really fun to stand up in front of the church on Sunday and say, hey, I wrote a book. It's called I Like Big Butts. It's the conjunction, not the part of the anatomy. That just shows that Tears' mother is both, grandmother is both a prude and has bad spelling. She bought a copy of it. We should just be thankful for it. She bought a paperback copy, which is where we make more money. So thank you, Miss Hardy. Let's start this way. Uh, not just how was it received, but why Romans? Um, I mean, you, you guys followed uh, the Revised Common Lectionary, and I know that uh, much of this grew out of sermons preached last summer. So um, why? Why Romans? Jason. Why <laughs> no, you know, brother, uh, Tier and I have had to talk about the book a lot the last two weeks. It's your turn <laughs> to answer a question. 
Uh, so Romans is uh, probably my favorite book of the New Testament. Um, and a few years ago when I was coming back uh, to work off of medical leave, um, I found it important to me in a way that it had not been uh, even prior. So, so it's important to me. Um, it's, of course, the commentary that launched Karl Barth's theological career. Uh, and I know that's He's been a, a feature of all three of us uh, on our podcast and in our sermons. So it's important in that respect. And I just knew that Taylor and I had preached a lot of sermons on Romans. And so if we were going to put together a book uh, as a fundraiser for a podcast, that would be the easiest book of the Bible to use. That's probably the most honest answer. <laughs> but I would say, I mean, like, uh, like one of the frequent topics that we come to again and again uh on all three of the podcasts, Sermonetic, Strangely Warmed, and Crackers and Grape Juice, is uh, the vocation of preaching. Um, and I think preaching Paul is particularly hard um, for preachers, especially in a mainline context. Um, we are taught in seminary what makes Paul problematic, but we're not really equipped uh, to preach Paul constructively. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, this book then can be kind of an extension of what we try to do on the podcast in terms of reflecting helpfully on, on what it means to be a preacher. So in Johanna's introduction, she makes a really great point uh, that the sermons reflect different personalities. And so you, you get um, maybe a bit more um, prophetic or direct uh, with, uh, Taylor, uh, you get some of the most uh, self-deprecating bits, um, sarcasm in uh, Jason Michelli, and then and then uh, uh, Tier Hardy is considered the least egocentric of the three of you. He's the only reason he's the least egocentric is he's been preaching the for the shortest amount of time. Here's what Joanna wrote. Tier is one of those pastors who lack, whose lack of ego investment makes them barely own the word pastor. I didn't expect such a hefty theological treatment. <laughs> He's too good. It's like a backhanded compliment. It is. <laughs> she, she could have just written, bless their hearts, and it would have been. Tier managed to exceed my incredibly low <laughs> expectations. But he's got a nice personality. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, Taylor, um, you uh, went to Duke. Uh, Tier, you're at Wesley. And, uh, Homeboy's done his homework. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Jason, Princeton. And so uh, the three of you had likely different influences when it comes to preaching, different preaching classes, preaching professors, and, and I'm kind of wondering about the the influences. Uh, were uh, were you um, uh, were, were some of your influence uh, stem from the, your time in seminary or uh, working on your graduate work? Um, you know, we all look for our voice and how we develop and and how we think through that. And so I'm just kind of interested that while you the three of you spent a lot of time together and two of you have been mentored by one of the others um, along the way. I'm just wondering, uh, what role did your seminary education uh, play in um, the, your your development as a preacher 
And um, um, maybe that helps some of the rest of us kind of kind of know how uh, you perceive that that practice of uh, of preaching uh, as you practice the craft uh, today. One of my hangups about uh, homiletics and seminary is I made the false assumption that I was going to learn how to preach from my preaching class in seminary. And all I learned was how to not preach it. Like, this is what a bad sermon looks like. Uh, here is how to not wave your hands too much when you're in the pulpit. <laughs> it, it was about the aesthetics more than like the theology. And that was remarkably disappointing. And I realized, you know, most preachers, I think, are the preachers they're going to be before they go to seminary. I don't think seminary makes that much of a, a difference. You get some tools, you know, that, that certainly help. But uh, I remember leaving seminary feeling like, gosh, I didn't learn anything in my preaching class. And I don't know if that says more about me or about my school. Uh, I certainly like reading Bart sermons. He's probably high on the the influence list. Williman, too, is another beloved sermon writer. I like Harawas's sermons a lot because he's a lay person, and so he comes at it differently. But uh, I've said that, I think Tier and I have talked about this before. One of my things that I really like about Bart's sermons is that he almost always just preaches on one verse. And I'm a big lectionary person. That's why I do the Strange and Warm podcast. And, you know, some pericopes are really long. And there's so much theological material to sort of unpack and to just take one verse. And sometimes he just preaches on like one word or one phrase in the verse. And he'll write this, you know, 3,000 word sermon that's better than anything I could ever come up with. And I like, I like really mining the, the small and the fragile to find out what theologically is going on. So for me, it's probably Bart, Willman, Harawas. So when I first started writing sermons, I, would, I was working with Jason. And so for the first couple of sermons I wrote, I, or actually for all of them when we were working together, and even so now, I would walk into his office and ask for help or recommendations, and he would just hand me a book and send me on my way. Uh, it was more, off, more often than not, it was Howard Wassenbart then. Uh, now I find myself listening to a lot of Amy Butler, a lot of her preaching. Todd and I, have uh, we talked to her a few months ago about the God and Guns event that she's having in uh, October on the 18th up in New York City. Uh, so a, a lot of Amy Butler, Brian's on, um, and of course, uh, Will Amon. I should say for all the Methodists listening, John Wesley. John Wesley, John Wesley, John Wesley. <laughs> you know, sometimes I read his sermons and I really wonder how the hell this church happened. <laughs> well, oh, hang on. And, and no one's mentioned Fleming yet. So let's put Fleming Rutledge. Actually, the first thing I do lately when I, when I sit down to write a sermon, I have a, a book of Fleming's sermons and she also posts a few on her blog and so it's one of the first places i check um <laughs> there it is the bible and the new york times that's funny uh so i had a counseling professor at princeton named robert dykstra and he is the one who taught me to preach um and not on purpose um his advice um to me was to find a preacher whose voice I could best approximate um, and to take one of that person's sermons and to uh, rewrite it, to memorize it, to videotape myself giving it, to learn what made it work. 
um, and just and do that until you know I could just do it from memory. And it just so happened that he was a preacher that I could imagine myself sounding like and writing like. Uh, and so I did that with one of his sermons, um, and I preached exactly like him for the first couple of years. And I don't preach at all like that anymore. Um, but he, in terms of the craft of writing a sermon and delivering it, um, he was important to me. And his book, Discovering the Sermon, um, is, is really good. It's about being playful with the text. Um, and <laughs> now I'd probably call that Jesus, <laughs> but, but back then it was a really helpful book to me. I've had every book that we've referenced. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, so, so, so he was important to me. Fleming was um, at the Center for Theological Inquiry in Princeton when I was a student there. Uh, and so she preached quite often in chapel. Um, and so I was taken with her authority in the pulpit um, and her respect for the word. Um, and then uh, Cleo LaRue, I was his TA, a black preaching professor. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And, and, and I, <laughs> author of The Heart of Black Preaching, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, learning from him, you know, that, that what makes black preaching work is not the ornamentation that so many people associate with it, but it, the trust in the word, um, to convey and to celebrate the gospel. Um, so those, yeah, those are important people to me. You know, one of the things I find ironic is that, um, gosh, it's been, Probably 15, 16, 17 years ago, there was a, a conference out on the West Coast where uh, a group of angsty Gen Xer leaders were um, probably, and this was probably by design. In other words, it was, it was probably a prov- provocation more than it was sincerity because all of them continued to preach after this, but there was this declaration that, that uh, preaching was dead. But here we are. We got two guys uh, in their 30s and, and a guy who's 40. And you guys are, are, are taking preaching uh, serious in a day where, where, you know, we're just not so sure or some weren't so sure that preaching would be a thing, that uh, our interest and emphasis would be on something else. And, you know, preaching wasn't primary. And, uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, um, you know, what, what, uh, influenced you to kind of run counter to that particular uh, impulse that um, you guys take this serious. Uh, you you write manuscripts. You work diligently. You um, uh, look out for and listen to influences. You think theologically in the crafting of your sermons. And so, uh, for some, this might be a little bit refreshing. I mean, some of us who are a little bit older, and I won't say how much older, uh, this is this is kind of how preaching was emphasized back in the day. And then, then we were told some of us uh, listened even uh, to that. You know, uh, preaching it's it's not that big a deal. And and so, uh, what do you think about all that? Yeah, it's called the Epistle to the Romans. Uh, you know, so I, you know, Jason taught this to me, but uh, th- it was taught to him by others. Like the message of the church, the message of the gospel is not self-interpreting. And there's a reason there wasn't just one gospel, and then that was sufficient for the early church. There's a reason there's a lot of epistles, and there's four different gospels, and there's the Acts of the Apostles, um, because. Th- 
speaking about God's word is the way that helps us come closer to that word, the word that has already come to us. And I think Romans might be the best or is the best sort of uh, example of this. And one of the reasons I think we chose this and why I think it's important is I always try to remind my congregations that in many ways, Romans was thought about and created far before any of the gospels were ever written. And so here we have a very early Christian wrestling with what it means to be Christian, wrestling with how we use words to come closer to the word, capital W. And therefore, I find the task of preaching to be akin to the writing of the epistles in such that we're trying to uh, make sense of this thing that you can't make sense of, trying to make incarnate the word that's already been made incarnate. Uh, And therefore, like to answer your question, it's just like Romans is the answer. Yeah, I think for me, um, so like theologically, I, I, I'm, I'm resisting what I think is a trend in the mainline church to resemble a church of Paul's opponents. <laughs> the church constantly saying, you know, this is what we have to do to be Christian. Uh, and it's all this extra stuff rather than preaching Christ crucified. Um, and so I, I think kind of insisting on proclamation as the first form of the church um, in, in, in both word and sacrament i think theologically is a commitment i have but then also uh dennis perry uh my mentor you know he told me like years ago when i was just getting started um that you know we can't afford to not do well on sunday morning that that's the one that's the one moment that the most number of people you know have with us as pastors um and they will evaluate whether to trust us whether to invest in us um, you know, based on that experience. Um, and so that, you know, the sermon can't suffer for urgencies of pastoral care and, and, and other things coming up. I was going to echo the same thing that it's, um, vocationally as a pastor, the number one uh, tool that I have to reach folks, to talk to folks, to respond to whatever is going on in the community is through preaching and to, tie that into uh, maybe not tie it into, but uh, show where the gospel is present, where Christ is present in the midst of whatever's happening in the community. And I have a, like Jason, I have a captive audience for 12 to 15 minutes in my church. If I go 16, people start to get a little upset and it's fine. Uh, But I, I, you had, you, like Jason, you reach your biggest audience uh, on Sunday morning uh, and, and to not take it seriously, to just get up there and, and not have prepared anything um, is, I, I think it's irresponsible as a pastor to do that. And those emergent people may have been right about non-Christians, although it's kind of funny that, you know, <laughs> the emergent movement is dead, not preaching. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it may be true that like people who aren't interested in Christianity at all are less interested in sermons than they ever have been before. Um, but I think, you know, I think it was a Pew survey last year that came out when people are considering going to church, like quality of content in a sermon is the primary driver. Preaching is number one. In a digital age, um, where you can't rely on people to show up every Sunday morning, the sermon is like one of the, you know, um, detachable things from the life of the church that we can push out to people. Um, and if they will, you know, kind of digest, um, so I think the traditional quote unquote sermon serves a different function, um, even in that regard. 
Well, statistically speaking, 40% of millennials, which is the kind of unicorn generation that the church is trying desperately to reach, um, just in general, 40% of millennials listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that of millennial Christians, that number jumps up to around 62% are listening to podcasts. So sermons, I think, are... I don't like the word content, but it's content that's already been generated. It's already been created by the church. Uh, and to um, preach it on a Sunday morning and then put it in a drawer and never use it again. Uh, I, I think preaching offers a way of evangelism, a way of helping people grow in their faith uh, in a digital world that other discipleship techniques and tools that the church is using can't adapt as quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, uh, I listen to, uh, uh, Jason's sermon every Sunday afternoon. I, uh, my wife and I clean a bank and, uh, you know, that's my get to listen to somebody else. Uh, I don't wait till, you know, we post ours and to go back and listen to my own sermon. I, I, I really enjoy listening to somebody else. And then I, I'll pick up and read you two guys, uh, often. And I think that's a, that's a really big help. And, and to know that, that there are ways that, that the the sermon uh, is is valued and uh, an entry point for some who might be um, interested in church or interested in the faith or have questions about Christianity, and so taking the sermon seriously and then making it available is 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 a positive. I do think it's important to note though that listening to a sermon on a podcast is not a substitute for being part of a worshiping congregation, and. You know, it's weird and kind of frightening that we, the, you know, we pastors who post things on blogs and podcasts that we can statistically look at how, how many people we're reaching. And I can tell you that more people read my sermons from my blog every week by a factor of like five or 10, depending on the week than I had in worship on Sunday. And which means people are hungry for it. However, I don't think the proclamation of the word is intelligible outside of the place in which it's done. Although you're, you're slower to disappoint people um, if they don't actually come to your church. Yeah. Yeah. And they can say whatever the hell they want about what you said without repercussion. But you can delete their comment and just ignore them. Whereas if it's a physical body that's standing in front of you, this past Sunday morning who may or may not have been upset with what you said in the pulpit. I, I think the, the busyness is more than just practicality though. Cause I think tied into the busyness of people's lives is this like endless attempt to um, self-justify and, and work out, you know, and, and save ourselves. And, and so like Romans, Romans is an approach. I think revisiting Paul as a church is, is more important now than ever um, because there, there, we live in a culture that is addicted to to busyness um, and is hiding all sorts of unshared shame. Um, and, Do not be conformed to this world, but be yeah. transformed by the renewing of your minds. And even in the church, odds are like in the mainline church, the, the odds are better than even that you're not really going to hear a message of grace. Um, and so, so Paul and especially Romans and the freedom therein, I think are more needful now than at any recent time. Well, you know, I don't know that uh, Mainline has a, a corner on uh, sermons that uh, uh, don't uh, play heavy to grace. Um, I, I, 
I think you'd probably hear that in, in, in many churches where, you know, to stay with the themes of, of Romans and what you all have explicated that uh, what's really at work most of the time is, is creating a new law. And, uh, and so it's refreshing to, uh, to hear um, a message of grace. You know, one of the last things I, I want to kind of hit you up about is, is there's, there's an, an interesting interplay in your relationships. In other words, you know, we've talked about uh, who do you listen to, who have you read, uh, what was your seminary experience like is in, in terms of forming you to be a, a preacher, uh, how you continue to develop your craft and, and that sort of thing. And, and I'm, I'm left wondering... Um, what has been the benefit to you all uh, carrying on this relationship? I've watched from a distance. I, I listen. I know how you interact on your you know, Facebook Live videos when you're prepping or uh, uh, doing a, a podcast, uh, say, with Johanna. And, and you all uh, kind of have quite the uh, uh, camaraderie, and you don't give, you don't give uh, uh, a lot uh, away to each other. I mean, you, you, you kind of uh, don't mind, you know, uh, giving it uh, back to one another, a little little not tit for tat, but you know, really press one another pretty hard, and and having those uh, that theological uh, interaction uh, has to have some some value along the way. I know for me as the novice preacher uh, in the group that um, Monday mornings typically after I get the kid off to school and I'm hanging out at the house. I'll listen to Jason's sermon from that Sunday and Taylor's sermon from that Sunday. And I can hear this, the influences theologically that they lean on are the same influences I lean on. And then in turn, they become theological influences for me. Uh, so it's, I, I don't know. I, like you said, we don't sit down and like map out our sermons <laughs> or together but I think we're reading a lot of the same stuff. I think we're recommending a lot of the same stuff to one another. At least they're recommending it uh, to me. It's not. It's more of a, a one-way street right now because uh, I'm still trying to figure um, this whole preaching thing out. I don't know what it's like for them, but it, I think it's for me. It's because I lean on them so often for, for help. And Taylor and Jason are the ones who, you know, when it's Friday afternoon and I'm struggling, <laughs> you know, which has happened more than I like recently. I'll send, you know, a draft over to them and they'll either give me an affirmation that I'm on the right track or, you know, make it so I still have my job the following Monday. After he's paid for my time on Square. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think part of it is that certain people like Fleming Rutledge have occupied so much bandwidth on our podcast. Um, so it's not surprising that, um, you know, a lot of the same themes we come back to again and again are, are the ones that make it into our sermons. Um, and, and especially like these sermons on Romans, it, it's natural then that a lot of what Fleming says has made its way into how we approach those texts. Similar with that, I think, you know, I, I definitely noticed for, for Jason, I think it's partly true for tier two. Bart's book on Romans is probably the most influential theological book I've read. And that that's not to say that like I'm pulling it down off the shelf every time I preach Romans to quote him or anything, but just what he does in that has, is very deep in my soul so that I know that it comes forth. But to Tier's point as well, I know that the three of us are all reading each other's stuff all the time. And 
when you are tasked within your vocation to be the one proclaiming the word from the pulpit on a regular basis, you forget that you need to receive that proclamation as well. I think one of the hardest things for me after my first year of ministry was realizing I hadn't heard a sermon in a year other than the ones I had produced. And that was really weird having gone from, you know, you know, 20 some years of hearing sermons every Sunday to then only hearing my own. It's really important for me to read other people's sermons. And I think, you know, Tier and Jason are some of the best preachers that I know. And it's a wonderful thing that I can read or listen to them preach. Uh, and that makes a big difference because then we become conversation partners, as Tier said, without having to sit down and really unpack what we've done. Mm-hmm. I always have this picture of Fleming, like in my mind as I'm preaching, because uh, there's something she that she said that stuck out to me probably over a year ago, uh, right before I moved up to Arlington, was that uh, it's all about gospel proclamation. Like that's our that's the task of the preachers: proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not about five ways to f- fill in the blank better or how to not be bad at this anymore. Uh, and so as I'm writing, I always like, I always think like if, if I sent this to Fleming, would she be able, w- would her response be, where's the proclamation of the gospel? <laughs> and that's kind of the starting point where I, where I, where I begin and where I try to end when, when I'm writing. Yeah, she's yeah, think- not a big fan of pop culture references. That's she's taking me to the woodshed, which is funny though, because like in her, especially in her collection, and this is true, I think for a lot of her sermons, she references a story from the New York times in almost every single sermon. Yeah. So it's not pop culture, but Dan, that's pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Uh, pop culture. That's fake news, Taylor. You're allowed to do it. It's like, it's like a fairy tale. Well, and I think what's been helpful for me is uh, having these guys read my sermons, but then also sending them to people who are not emotionally invested in my ministry. Uh, sending them to someone like Fleming, uh, who will tell me point blank what needs improvement. What, what are my opportunities to grow uh, in, um, in my preaching? And so that's been helpful for me. And someone who I trust what they're saying. Cause so often we ask people, and this is probably true in every aspect of our lives. We ask people for in for feedback or for um, ways we can improve upon whatever the task is. And we receive, we receive what we've asked for, but then we get angry or we blow it off because they don't know what they're talking about. You know? And, and so I have found that ha- having people who, who are close to you that can influence your preaching uh, is beyond helpful. It's um, something that's blessed me this past year uh, of being a novice preacher, but then having people outside of that inner circle that can chime in when necessary to, to kind of keep you in check. I think ministry is like a, well, I mean, it, it can be a lonely thing. So I, I do think um, there are a lot of, a lot of pastors out there who are lonely and not connected with other pastors in a constructive way. Um, and I know different denominations do things better and worse, you know, but I, I think in our United Methodist system, um, the appointment process and itinerancy tend to kind of produce kind of a, a petty competitiveness that isolates people even more. So, so I, I do think, um, being in conversation about the craft of preaching, I think is, you know, is important because, you know, as Taylor pointed out, like in in homiletics courses in seminary, like nobody knows what the hell they're doing at that point. Um, The homiletics course I took this year (laughs) 
like screwed up my preaching for three months. <laughs> it was not helpful at all. Uh, it actually, I think, in my estimation, made me a worse preacher. I, so one, of, oh, yeah, one of my one of my friends, she had to preach when we were in seminary, and she got her sermon back, and the only note on it was, "Don't wear black nail polish next time." It was too distracting <laughs> while you were preaching. Yeah, I mean that's the it's a waste of time. And then like you know, like at preachers' conferences, like the Festival of Homiletics, so many of the the presenters at those are not practicing preachers; they're just kind of Christian celebrities. Um, and so there, you know, there aren't a lot of opportunities unless you initiate them on your own to, to kind of think through how do you do this well and faithfully. Um, I, I I do. I mean, I said this before. I think it's true. I I read a lot of fiction and I, I like to read books by authors about their craft the process of writing for them and nine times out of ten they say the the way to become a better writer is to become a better reader the more you read the better you write and i really think the more the more sermons you read from a great variety of resources the better preacher you become jason was asking it like a year ago uh what would be some ways for like our conference or our denomination to make better preachers what kind of preaching what kind of festival homiletics could we put on and and one of my responses was, well, we just need to teach better theology because what we're getting on Sundays from a lot of places is just a really watered down version of how to be a better you. But I think the other thing is we just need to listen to other people preach, not because we'll take that and say, oh, I'm going to preach that sermon when I get home. But if all you're doing is listening to the narrative in your head, that's all you're ever going to get. Yeah, that's why I've, I felt like on Monday I was I, I, I was kind of cheated, you know, uh, uh, Jason didn't preach uh, last Sunday, and so when I went to go look for a sermon uh, from Annandale, there there wasn't one there. I tried to get Peter to record it, and he, he's 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 too shy. He's old school Korean. Although I have to say this, so so he he uh, so last Sunday he he was like to the side of the pulpit, and I didn't know he had done this. He he took like a video of me in the pulpit preaching, and and I tend to like bounce on my toes a lot, and I guess I was kicking my leg out a little bit, and so he he worked he, he like he showed that video at the beginning of his sermon, and then like juxtaposed it with some scene from Princess Diaries. Um, and it was it was. I thought it was more embarrassing that he had seen the Princess Diaries enough to call up that that scene. But, um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, Jason tells that story on himself and and what Peter did, and um, I I can't help but thinking that you know one thing that you uh, three seem to do, particularly Jason, um, is you use yourself from time to time as um, uh, an illustration. And generally in a self-deprecating way, generally in a way of not making yourself necessarily the hero of the story, but, but, but a part of it. And, and, and in my uh, experience, that was a no-no. Uh, you don't use personal illustrations. You don't talk about yourself in the pulpit. You know, and w- what was bad about that is you, you felt like you had to go buy one of those thousand illustration books that were just terrible. I mean, just terrible. So it is kind of refreshing uh, to uh, hear uh, you all use... Um, personal antidotes, personal stories as a means to connect with uh, your congregations. My favorite story in the go- uh, in the gospel in the book of Acts uh, is when Paul is preaching upstairs, and there's a young man named Eutychus sleeping, uh, sitting in the windowsill. And Paul Acts says, continues to go on late into the night, and the candles are burning, and it's very warm. And Eutychus falls asleep, and he falls out the window, and he dies. 
And I love that story very, very much for a lot of reasons, but it has always been a warning to me. Don't bore someone to death in church. And so I take that call really seriously. Um, you know, I, I remember Jason telling me years ago, like every sermon needs to have 2000 words. Like That's how long your sermons need to be. I will cut a sermon in half if it means it will keep people's attention because I don't want to kill any Eutychuses. Is it Eutychai? Well, I'm not as saintly as St. Paul. Um, I also think that personal stories, personal narratives are really important because object lessons don't teach us anything. We forget them. I don't know why the hell 99% of children's sermons are object lessons because kids do not remember them. Adults do not remember them. It's not a good way to teach. Stories are how we teach. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. And damn it, that's the way Jesus does it. He tells a bunch of stories about, you know, some of them are about himself. Sometimes they're about other people. And I, I think that's what, I think that's what moves people. It also is an opportunity for us to model vulnerability within our community and show through our, our experiences that we have a shared experience even if we have differing theological positions, uh, being just outside DC, having different political opinions, uh, that we all have these shared experiences. Uh, and it's, so it's, I think it's, a, it's been a way for me this past year to share uh, more with my congregation about who I am and how I've arrived at this particular point in my life. It's, I don't know, it's an interesting thing you bring up, Todd, because I think the last couple of years as I've relied more and more on Paul, I've actually, um, I've told less personal stories and, and, and I've, I've, that's been like intentional on my part just because I'm aware of how <laughs> so people don't remember object lessons. The danger is they remember stories more than they actually remember the, the scripture, um, yeah, play. and that's that's a good call. If the story you tell is more important than the the scriptural narrative, yeah, then you've you've fallen into the hole you dug. So I think, I mean, like Tears Right, I think you know that revealing about yourself can show vulnerability. You can model, you know, how to how to embody, you know, the claim of this text as a Christian um, by how you handle it in the pulpit. Um, you know, the use of story can show, you know what is urgent about the text um, and, and all of that. Um, but yeah. So, so yeah, I, I but like, so the, my sermons in, in, from Romans in this book, most of them do not have any personal stories in them. Um, they might have one-off jokes and anecdotes and things of that sort. Um, but yeah, at least the, the more recent ones, I think rely more on stories from the news or, or, something other than myself well i, I, mean, I like, do i, I yeah like i do Taylor think mentioned like writers though sorry to, uh, like fiction and you know like the rule of fiction is that you know that which is most particular is most universal and so i like the problem with canned like anecdotes and, and illustrations and all of that is that like i mean they're not particular at all and so they don't they don't work other than to make you seem like you're not really a real person so why should i give a shit about what you're saying about the text mm-hmm like that, oh my gosh, the sermon at Taylor's ordination service. 
uh, was one of the worst sermons I have ever heard. And I just felt personally offended um, on behalf of everybody there. Um, it was like I, some, some bishop from New York, and he told some story about some guy going fishing and throwing dynamite in the lake. Um, and then a story about a bird cage. I, like, yeah, the whole time I was sitting there praying like, Lord, please make something of his nothing. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It was a whole lot of nothing. And it was old nothing. Like, you could just tell that like, he got this out of the world's oldest, like, sermon illustration book. It had nothing to do with anything, nothing to do with, like, the occasion for which we'd gathered. It was just for him to kind of occupy 12 minutes. It was awful. Awful. Yesterday, the election, uh, one of the elections yesterday was the Ephesians text about how Christ has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. And, um, you know, I, I prayed a lot about wh what, what to proclaim and what to say and what story I might use. And I didn't write it in my sermon, but in the service, I told a story about my last church, how we had two, two men that were brothers. And they'd been going to this church for 40 years and they hadn't talked in 39 to each other. And um, I remember like getting there and someone nice old lady being like, hey, there are these two brothers. They don't talk. You need to fix it as if like that's, you know, my job. And so I went to the first brother and I talked with him and, you know, I learned about him. And I tried to figure out why he doesn't talk to his brother. And he said, that son of a bitch, he won't like talk to me. He doesn't invite me to his house. But whatever the thing is, and I said, yeah, but why did this start 39 years ago? And he said, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, I went to the other brother and the same thing happened. You know, at the end, he said, I can't even remember why this this hostility started. And then they still wouldn't talk to each other until one of their wives died. Hmm. And the the one brother went to the funeral for his brother and they embraced for the first time in four decades. And and so I, I told that story and I said at some point to the people like, good Lord, do not do not wait 40 years to talk to someone. Don't wait for someone to die because someone already did so that you don't have to have that hostility there anymore. You know, and like that, that I think is true. I think it's proclamation. I think it, it's, a, it's a narrative that fits with the scripture. And um, I didn't know how people were going to react to it, but a bunch of people cried because a lot of people can think of someone that they've stopped talking to through which the hostility has been destroyed by the cross and therefore there should no there should no longer be a dividing wall. And I think that's a really simple way to use like a personal narrative anecdote that ties in with the scripture to be, you know, almost like a parable in which people will resonate with because it's particular. That's a model of how Jesus taught. I mean Jesus taught parables. So like for us to use parables, modern day parables, I think is completely appropriate to the vocation that we're called to. So uh, one more time, uh, pitch the book. It's The book itself is very cheap. Well, I mean, we'll, I'll just put that there. It's less than $3.50 to purchase the ebook version on Amazon. Uh, and it is, I mean, why wouldn't you want to buy the number one new release in Christian preaching and new <laughs> <laughs> it has seriously been the new, the number one new release on Amazon for almost a month. How weird is that? I mean, it's because Tom Long's retired. <laughs> I mean, I, I, as a preacher, having the physical book in your hand and being able to just thumb to it very quickly while you're working in your notebook is easy. Uh, so, 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 Todd, I, I do think on a serious note, we're we're living in a world in which. We and we've been this way for more than three decades where we can no longer rely on the fact that people will just show up to church on Sunday morning. 
that uh, just having like an open door policy or an open table, like that does not mean anything. And I am hopeful that this book gets the proclamation of the word outside of the church for other people. I know that the podcast that the three of us are involved in, I know your podcast reaches people for whom church is no longer an option. And I think that in a way, this book can also reach people for whom church seems like it's no longer an option. And my hope is, is that in reading it, they might discover that the church isn't necessarily what they remember or the church isn't what they think it is. I think the three of us, as in Jason Tier and I, are not at all what the church gets made out to be in the larger culture. And so if the book is a way for people to discover that their local church might not be what they think it is, then I think it was worth our time trying to put it together. Now, that would be uh, an important discovery, that maybe the caricature of the church is not the church at all. And and maybe it's not just uh, Jason and Tyr and Taylor and the, the churches and denomination that uh, in which they are a part. Maybe there's some good news out there that that um, what someone has said about the church isn't the church, and maybe the, the reputation of the church suffers what what most uh, entities and organizations do, where what gets talked about makes the media uh, is merely representative of some of the smallest percentages uh, around, and uh, and and so um, pick up. Uh, uh, I like big butts. The conjunction uh, by um, Jason Michelli and Taylor Mertens and Tier Hardy. You won't want to miss the introduction by Johanna Hertelius, who is also the one who does their uh, hermeneutics podcast. Great podcast, and uh, she pushes back pretty hard on word and word meanings, and uh, it's it's really a really good podcast. Um, Taylor mentioned um, Strangely Warmed, their lectionary-based podcast. So if you happen to follow the Revised Common Lectionary, it's a great resource. And then and then their main, main podcast, um, the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast, where uh, they uh, interview uh, authors, um, practitioners, pastors, theologians, uh, politicians even, uh, or those who are involved in politics, uh, and... And so uh, those ought to be three uh, uh, podcasts you subscribe to, at least I do, and uh, recommend them to you. Uh, so this is a, a, another good way to kick off uh, the next season, if you will, or maybe to pick up from the two-month lull that, that we've had around here at Pathological. Has some other podcasts in the works, finishing up Alan Noble's book, uh, Disruptive Witness. I certainly hope to get him on the podcast. He's here in Oklahoma, so that might be easier, even if I have to drive over to Shawnee and snag him. Uh, But as always, I want to thank you for listening and being patient while we've uh, been absent. Uh, Just a busy summer and vacations and such. So um, here's to looking to the late summer and the fall and and some more hopefully for you uh, who are interested in the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. So uh, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, and thanks for listening. Peace.